0: Hello and welcome to the latest Motorsport Podcast. I'm Simon Aaron, Features Editor of the magazine. I'm delighted to say today we're joined by multiple Grand Prix winner and increasingly author, David Coulthard, and also Joe Dunn, Afternoon Joe, Motorsports Editor. David, it's great to spend time with you as always. Um, the, this isn't a motor racing book. I mean, all of you that have won Grand Prix, won championships, you've all done books but this is slightly different. The winning formula—it's not so much about I've won 13 Grand Prixs, I got disqualified at Le Mans, etc. It's about applying motor racing mentality, philosophy, mindset to the broader world. What was the kind of motivation for do, doing something like this?
2: Well, the motivation is—and you know—we've known each other a long time. So when I first started out on this journey, I, I didn't know. I didn't realise that that the business of Formula One was going to be so wide-ranging and that I was going to end up being involved in, in, in media, being involved in marketing, being involved in being uh, the, the translator of the big data that is the lifeblood of Formula One because ultimately the driver is the emotional element of the, the race car. You've got all this huge amounts of data that's there, but you've got to be able to direct the engineers towards... The data that's interesting, the data where the potential improvements are going to be. So it's it's almost like um, a little note to myself, which I think can be useful for. You don't have to be a sports person, but I think that for youngsters making their way in whatever industry it happens to be, to uh, you know, if I'd known then what I now know today, I think I would have made better decisions. I would have been. You um, won 113 Grand Prix. I don't think I would have won <laughs> any more Grand Prix. There's the reality. I don't. I think I maxed out my talent as a driver. So I don't sit here at all, sort of, you know, what could have been. Some drivers, uh, you might have even spoken to some of them very recently. Yeah, yes. um, still feel that they can they can still do it when they're you know a bit older than I am. I know that I used the talent to the best of my ability. I, I applied all the the um, skills and, and work ethic that my parents had instilled into me. And then I harness the, the learnings from a Jackie Stewart, a, a Frank Williams, Ron Dennis, through uh, you know, Dietrich Marischitz and the people that I've worked with there. And there's, there's key elements, I think, that of how they empower people, how they trust and, and how they delegate, which I think uh, are important lessons that can help people. So I wanted to put all that together. I've been increasingly doing talks for various companies because uh, very often when they have their annual conferences... It's all about teamwork and it's about strategy and it's about empowerment. Well, all of those things we do day to day in motorsport, you know, you work within deadlines when it comes to to publication motorsport works to deadlines, the Grand Prix will start, it, will, it used to conveniently start at 2 o'clock on a Sunday now it starts <laughs> ten at 10 past 4 <laughs> actually I think it was, or 10 past 3 in Barcelona, it completely screws up our ability to fly home on a Sunday night, but that's the brave new world and, and engaging with the fans um, but you know, we meet deadlines because they, they, do not move, they cannot move so people don't move them, we're in everyday industry, people will go, I'll have that with you at two o'clock on Friday afternoon, they don't deliver it at two o'clock Friday afternoon, and that means they're not getting it until maybe Monday. And they do that because they can, and the culture within the company allows them to do it. And I think, therefore, whether it's Formula One, whether it's uh, you know, as the, the, the building of the cars and delivering them to the racetrack, or whether it's the people who work within Formula One, the journalists, the marketeers, the uh, you know, the caterers, the the event staff, they are all they all know what's written in this book because I'm I'm not exposing some eureka moment but I'm sharing my experiences of how uh, it operates within Formula One and I I think for those who are not engaged in Formula One directly there could be some life lessons there.
1: You mentioned um, mentioned work ethic there and, and talent and it comes through really strongly in the book and I just wondered what your... Well, thought, I mean, often people say, oh, they were talented and this guy was a trier. And that's one of what you're. And in the book, you clearly say, for example, Lewis Hamilton, you say he's got an amazing work ethic and you talk about your work ethic. Mm. And I just wanted to know where you saw the, the balance between talent and working hard.
2: Well, I think that there's many examples within uh, in the sport that we love where there's um, talented, they're all talented, they're all good drivers uh, at any level, whether it's karting, whether it's you know, sports cars, Formula One, but at any, uh, the highest level in sport, you're not looking for goods. You're looking for exceptional. You're looking for those sportsmen and women that you, you go, wow, that's impressive. And throughout the history of motor racing, there's been those people, you know, the fanjo's or you know Jim Clark, Jackie Stewart's, Senna's, whatever name you want to pull out. And I think the Hamilton falls into that category. Whether they are all universally liked, whether they're everyone's cup of tea or not, is a different different question altogether, but I have this very simple theory that will never be disproved, that if you take the greats, you know those that were able to do exceptional things, and put them all at 30 years old, that might be difficult for Fangio because I think he maybe started a bit older but uh, if you you pick a random age put them all in a a car today and and, uh, at the peak of their powers, I think they'd all be as fast as each other, because I don't think because the machinery's changed, and because the drivers have got a little bit slimmer and 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 uh, you we're know, focused I think it's just the evolution of sport it becomes a lot more marginal gains, you know, you're know you focused into the nth degree, but the basic talent of, as it's largely been man and machine, but thankfully motorsport is open to, to women as well but human and machine, in perfect harmony, I was drawn to it, and I assume you were drawn to it, as a fan first of all watching people doing it, and then we found the areas that we could work within the sport
0: <clears throat> I mean it's quite There is something of a, there's a very clear line I think between, I mean I played a lot of sports as a kid, football, cricket, hockey, Um, I did quite a bit of racing in my 20s in you know club level stuff but I didn't, I really wasn't that bothered. If I went to Mallory Park and raced a Renault 5 and I was racing for 5th place or 25th place it didn't matter, I'd had a nice day out, had a bit of fun, have a drink with the guys afterwards, you know I didn't ever envisage doing anything more than that, same on a football field, I loved playing. And if we won, it was a bonus. But if I lost, I really wasn't that bothered. But most of you guys, you know, you you treated defeat in a very different way, didn't you? In, in, a, in a way, I mean, you're wired completely different, differently from somebody like me.
2: Yeah, well, I think that, you know, I was of that generation. And maybe I, I was one of the, the first of that generation to really come through school karting and pretty much from school go into car racing with with a a belief that I could make a career in in motorsport. Prior to to my generation, people were working, doing different things and doing a bit of racing and then they would get their opportunity. Um, So at all times, I I realised how important it was to win. You know, finishing second... Was you know Ron Dennis's famous expression about first of the losers. You know it's a bit brutal. Somebody's got to be second. But I, I, even in victory, um, I used to always keep a, a sort of little notebook to myself of how I felt I performed. And I don't believe I ever gave myself in the lower formulas ten out of ten, even if I won the race by twenty seconds. But there were times when I finished third or fourth or. Uh, you know, maybe even fifth, like you, you mentioned, um, <laughs> and uh, I'd you have been know. turning somersaults when fifth <laughs> £8 uh, prize Well, yeah, that's a, you know, prize money is important, um, but I might have given myself a higher marking for finishing in a lower position because I felt my performance was more complete, I made less mistakes, my thought process and, and commitment to the job was was as I think it, it should be. So, you know, from a very early age, I was grading my performance and, and you know, focusing in on on that sort of um, last little extra that can make the difference.
0: So that compartmentalised approach has actually sort of helped you in, you, in, in structuring a book, I guess?
2: Yeah, well, it's again, a lot of what's in here is individual examples of what I've been talking about for the last 10 years, away from Formula One, engaging the reaction and interest from people in those subjects, then I felt it would be interesting to bring them together. It's not going to be interesting to everyone, I accept that, um, but I think that uh, gauging the initial reaction uh, has been positive and, you know, I'm very happy to, to be able to present this. And um, as much as anything, these are the sort of mantras that, you know, we have a nine-year-old and, he, you know, when he rolls his eyes because I'm telling him the same thing again about work ethic and commitment, well, these are the sort of things that I was told and I believe in them. So, of course, if you believe in something, you want to share it with others.
1: Have you, got it? So you make it sound quite dry. <laughs> there are some really funny anecdotes in that book as well. The one I like is that when Frank Williams asked you to show him your abs mm. to prove, or yeah. you interpreted it as, yeah. uh, uh, to prove that you were fit enough to drive one of his cars.
2: Yeah, I know. But, but imagine the scenario. I'm a young man. I was quite shy when I was younger. and, and You were that
0: shy. I, well, yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> but in, in bigger environments, yeah. yeah. I know we know each other for a long time, but you know, put me on a stage. I was really struggling to articulate, you know, because I didn't quite know how how I was supposed to look if I was receiving an award or, or something. And I was always comparing to if you were doing something like the BRDC awards where you had people like Moss and Stewart and people that were legends of the sport. And I didn't feel I fitted. I deserved to be in, in, in the same category as them because I hadn't achieved what they had. But because I was in a winning British Formula One car, you scored more points, so you picked up the gold star. So I struggled to, to want to have that sort of um, spotlight uh, on me but anyway I've grown out of that now love a bit of spotlight uh, but yeah the, the situation with Frank young racer and he's asking to you see your stomach I, you know, I was like Jesus, this... should I phone my mum and ask if this is okay um, if I showed him my, my belly now I think he would fall out of his chair and uh, you know with the words of get out you know I mean, I've got, a, I've, I've, got an, I've got an ab but thankfully I was always quite slim then and you know I had a few little abs but it, for him it was he, he wanted I guess because Nigel was was a you know he was a big bodied man wasn't he very strong very fit, incredibly brave racer you're fantastically fast when you consider the weight disadvantage he had alongside Prost and people like that back in the days when the driver's weight wasn't included but I guess maybe what he couldn't shape and mould in a Nigel a young driver he could kind of shape and mould and Frank uh, prior to his accident was an incredible athlete, yeah. uh, very fit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And so he could relate to that and, he, and, and wanted to see that in, in the young racers.
0: And I think it's true, as well, just diverting slightly, that um, such was Nigel's strength. Isn't it true that there was a steering rack on the Williams that you couldn't actually... Was it the last corner in Estoril? Yeah. You, you, str- you struggled to get around with
2: Nigel's steering uh, it, Well, It wasn't that I struggled. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. I, I did most of the testing. Back then, I think uh, we, on average, probably had... I know, 80 litres of, of fuel on board for most of the testing. And so I got used to driving this car with a normal size steering wheel. Um, and the Williams, the steering was always kind of below the chassis, which was the, the sort of popular thing at that time, which was quite a, it's quite a difficult, you know, if you're looking for a leverage point, you'd want something up there so you can get stuck in. Um, but anyway, they, they wanted me to jump in Nigel's car at a test in Estoril with full tanks and his steering wheel. I went out of the pits and, and struggled to get around the first corner I struggled to get around the second corner and uh, drove slowly, came back in and said, I think there's something wrong with the car. And I'm like, well, Matt McCarthy the check it all over and everything. They said, no, everything's fine. I went, well, I can't turn the steering. <laughs> and that that was just how he you know, he needed that physicality of the, the, the weight of the steering to get him in that angry place to be brilliant. Uh, he, he was someone that, um, as we know, was when he was against the wall or, or he felt that the, the, you know, people were against him, that's when he really delivered the big performances. So I think it was all part of his, his preparation, but, yeah, it didn't make any sense.
0: It, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, if you look at... I know it's not uniform with the case that a racing driver sets up a team or something that's going to be successful, but you look at guys like Roger Penske, I mean, one of the world's most successful, successful men of mm. you know, all time ever in, in everything... Um, you know, Ron Dennis, uh, Frank, uh, Nicky Lauda, setting up airlines yeah. and things. There does seem to be something. David, David, David Richards, drive, yeah, yeah, world yeah, rally yeah. champion, a yeah. pro driver, one of the biggest engineering businesses mm. in the UK. And there are lots. I mean, you, you've opened a couple of hotels and things. And there are lots of you who've gone on to do things away from racing and made huge, huge successes of it. I mean, do you think that that's all part of the same competitive mindset and the skill set that you develop as you are progressing in, in the sport?
2: I think so I think it, it's also, and I do have this conversation with myself from time to time I, I, you know, I don't really have long conversations with myself but occasionally I'll be you know, what, are you, what are you doing, what's your motivation in this because it does take time it does mean that you're, you're not spending as much time at home as maybe a traditional husband and, and, and father would do but I'm, but I'm driven I'm, I'm not, you know, not driven for recognition but I'm, I love being part of a team you know, I respect those that do a solo uh, ascent of Everest or, or, or walk across, the, you know, to, to the North Pole or whatever. But that's where, not an not the No, radar no. Where, where, where is the high-fiving moment with your team? You know, I like having a, people around me. And that—the moment I used to love as a Grand Prix driver—of course, standing on the podium, spraying the champagne is wonderful. It's a relief. You know, it's like, oh thank God, for that. You know, I've <laughs> won a race. Um, but it was when the, man, the mechanics strapped you in green flag lap is approaching you guys give you a little high five or, or whatever and they walk away from the car and it's they've handed over the trust to you you know you've trusted in them to prepare you a safe fast racing car and they walk away and that's the moment where take a breath and you're ready to do the, the green flag lap and you know then you're going into battle to represent your team and then if you bring it back with a victory you're back amongst your team again so I've always enjoyed being part of 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 a team of people who've got skills that I, I couldn't deliver a design of a racing car. I can't build a racing car. You know, these hands are made for tampering. They're not made for you know building a gearbox. Um, and but I know people who can. So you learn at a very early stage. And I guess Rogers and David's and all those other guys, they have the confidence to go into other business, but making sure they partner with people who've got experience and skills that can deliver where they can't deliver, and they use their skills, their communication skills, their knowledge and contacts to bring together opportunities so that's what I've continued to be motivated by and um, you know lying on the beach at 37 and having uh, you know completed my Formula One career was an option but it just wasn't a a real thought for me because you you tempted no not at all I'd already signed to to work with the BBC because this had all been planned And, and, you know, I'd already had these conversations with my father when I was 14. After Formula One, you work in television. Not in a dictatorial, this is what you're doing, son. Because my father and mother did that when I was 19, when I got my first test in the the McLaren, courtesy of of Autosport. And, um, you know, they didn't come to that test because they said, well, son, they're testing you, they're not testing us. Go to the test, do the best you can and try not to crash. And, but what, what that was, I think, is a great example of they took me as a family as far as they could. And then the next part of the journey, I had to stand on my own two feet. I had to build relationships. I had to, for better or worse, find opportunities. And all of those twists and turns along the way, of course, it, it, at the end of a journey, it can look quite easy. And people go, well, I've, you know, you've won a few races and earned a few quid and what worries did he have? But as you know, the grassroots uh, journey of motorsport it's difficult. It's fraught with disappointment and borrowings and promises. Yeah, I'll get that money to you for the engine. Yeah, tomorrow. Tomorrow and then you borrow some other money elsewhere. It's, it's crazy, but it's an amazing life skill. And all of those learnings there, once you do have a little bit more comfortable base uh, as you get older, then I think it makes you more capable to make investment decisions.
1: Very um, far sighted of your, sorry. Mm. Very fast sighted of your father to see that far ahead also mm. to, to plot
2: your career in that way. Yeah, well, we were watching BBC, listening to Murray Walker and James Hunt, and you know, so my father's going, well, James Hunt was a racing driver. He's now doing television. That, cause my father didn't know anything about broadcasting. He actually, he's one of the most enthusiastic motor racing people I know that would struggle to know what end the engine was in. You know, he's just not into the detail. He just likes the event. He likes the the fact that it's you know a motor race going on, um, and I like that because he, you know, he, he, you know the visual stimulation, the noise, the wheel to wheel action is what draws him in, in, rather than what's all going on under the under the bonnet. <clears throat>
0: I was, I was going to ask, actually, there, have, you, have you settled all your
2: junior motor racing bills? Or are they, are yes, thankfully, planning? yeah. Well, it, it, when, I, when I started in Formula One, yeah, I had debts of £320,000, which um, uh, Sir Frank, my, the first sign-on that he wrote for me, was a cheque for £320,000. Which you gave back to him. Which, yeah, <laughs> which, I, which, I, which I then uh, made sure paid, so I was able to go into to my first proper season in, in Formula One 95, debt-free,
1: and, uh, is that, was
0: that the first time you've been? Yeah. There for you?
2: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. Just talking about TV. Then, I mean, um, what, what can you tell us? What your plans are now that the Channel Four um, is, well, that Formula One is no longer going to be free to air. Mm-hmm. Have you got plans?
2: Yeah, I'm. Uh, well, a little bit premature, but world exclusive. I'm planning a, um, a march to the Liberty Offices at the end of the year, and we're going to get all the Formula One fans to, to hunker down outside the building. And we're not going to leave until they put Formula 1 back on free-to-air television because, you know, we I grew up watching it, uh, and when you reduce the window of opportunity for people to flick through, you know, it was actually much easier back in my youth because there only was three channels, and we got super excited in 84, I think it was, when Channel 4 came along. Today there's a thousand channels and so many other uh, stimulations for the, the youngsters. So to actually capture them and draw them towards uh, what's, what's going on, you know, you're just going to shrink the audience. Um, they will still be the hardcore fans. Uh, you know, Sky as a broadcaster do a fantastic job, very you know, in-depth, they've got a dedicated channel. So there's no fear in terms of how well served uh, the sport will be, but it just will be a smaller audience. And putting to one side the fact that that means that I won't be working in free-to-air television, I just think it's a shame for Britain. This is the home of motor racing. Um, you know we, 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 we're too modest. We, we don't shout enough about how great the engineering is in Britain, how talented engineers from around the world want to come to Britain to engage with Formula One teams. Seven of the, the teams are based here. You know, it's a a huge industry and, and generator of income for the UK economy. And if people are not going, Oh that motor racing, well, I could be in media, I could be in marketing, I could be in engineering design, if they're not being drawn in because they're not seeing it, then maybe we lose them to other industries.
0: Well, I know, th- th- mm. yeah, because I, I know other sports of uh, golf, tennis, cricket, as, as they've gone mm. behind a paywall. You know, they have had a shrinking audience, and this at the same time. Sure. You know, when you and I were growing up, there was no Sunday shopping. Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't have we didn't have big multiplexes with bowling alleys and cinemas and things, and you know, cinemas are all being knocked down. Uh, but now, the Sunday entertainment options as well as TV, are vast. Yeah. Um, so it, it does seem odd that the sport is... I know that in the short term, I'm sure, you know, the money they get from the pay, bro- you know, pay TV broadcasters is great, but in the longer term... Mm.
2: Well, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? There's no question that the, the revenue stream that's coming from, from Sky is a huge boost... You know a deal that was done by, you know, by Bernie and his team at the time. It's a you know it's a huge amount of money that's going to come in, which benefits Formula One as a whole and of course the teams because they get a percentage of that. But it does mean, as you said, the audience shrinks and and it doesn't it, do anything for the grassroots. Yeah, to, to help to help yeah.
0: to develop interest, you know, lower down the scale.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But equally, in, in fairness to Liberty, having inherited a certain structure, they are investing in new media. They are. You know, putting the fan first, and you know, I'm all I'm all for that. I think that the only slightly disingenuous thing is, of course, it's you know, fan first, so we can take your money another way. You know, it's a business at the end of the day. It's not here's a gift to the fans. It's a it's, you know, engage the fans, and then we'll charge them some way. And I get that business is business. We all have to, to earn, a, earn a penny. But um, the I think that the areas that they're expanding into will will. Hopefully, mean that it, you know for the vast amount of people that are engaged in social media that, may, that aren't sitting on a Sunday flicking through television channels, maybe they will go, OK, I'll watch this OTT Formula One race, or maybe I won't watch the race, but I'll watch the three-minute highlights at the end of it, and I'll pay whatever it one ninety nine for that, that privilege. So maybe it'll grow an audience. Well, it has to grow revenues that way, because I think the traditional model of... You know, television companies paying those big numbers and the promoters paying those big numbers. You know, I think that that has reached a point of, of its peak. I just can't imagine. Well, Silverstone are not able to and are not willing to pay more than they have in the past. They, they need it reduced. Otherwise, they can't make a profit. Well, they, they can't break even, never mind make a profit. Um, and I don't think it's unreasonable in business to, to expect people you're doing business with to have a margin, to, to, to have a little bit of profit. Um, I think that's just fair and normal business. Just
1: on that Silverstone point, would you be sorry to see the Silverstone or the British Grand Prix leave yeah. Silverstone?
2: Absolutely. You know, it's, there's other great tracks in the UK. Of course there is, and, and there's been Grand Prix there in the past. But Silverstone have invested in the infrastructure. They've, they've changed the roads around. They've been, you know, developed this new pit complex. Um, and, of course, in doing so... It loses some of the heritage and history that we remember, you know, as old boys of racing. I still find it weird starting down at the wing rather than starting around, you know, before um, Cop's Corner. But uh, it is what it is. And for the younger generation, they don't know any difference. They just embrace it as it is. But if you've made all that investment uh, and you can, you know, fairly declare that you can afford this amount, then it seems the obvious place that you know, I'm sure Formula One could, you know, do a street circuit somewhere. Um, but that's going to take someone funding it and, you know, that's not a a cheap thing to do.
0: I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me
1: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites.
2: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
0: <clears throat> i was amused um, a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. when liberty put out a statement announcing that formula one was the fastest growing brand on social media well <laughs> it couldn't be <laughs> <laughs> given that it was starting from yeah, yeah. sort of ground zero basically there was nothing, but I mean, as you as you said, it um, yeah, it, it is. A, I think it's a they are taking steps in a good direction. Yeah. In that, that um, moving on to talking about Formula One more broadly, where are we in 2018? We've got interim regulations coming, new long term regulations coming in 2021. We've got Ricciardo and Stappen knocking ten bells out of each other at Red Bull. What shape do you think the sport's in at the moment? I think purely that, from the racing perspective rather than the business perspective
2: Yeah, I think that it's inevitable when you have stability in the regulations we've seen it over every other set of regulations we've had you know, the name has remained the same Formula 1 but the regs have been wildly different even during my time you know, I started with V8s, V10s, V12s racing against each other wide track slick cars then we went to this horrible period of grooved track narrow cars because I think it was Martin Whitmarsh had proposed that as a way of reducing cornering speeds um, it just wasn't really nice to drive. Thankfully, I got an Adrian Newey design car that was half a second quicker than anyone else, so it meant <laughs> I could win a few races. But as a purist and, and, and feeling, I still think the 95 Williams was one of the best cars I drove in and feeling challenge and feeling like a big, meaty Formula One car. Now, today, of course, they're getting to the lap times that we used to do in 2003, 2004 with the wide track cars, but they will go slower again next year. The drivers just want to go faster. Uh, it would seem to me that tracks have reached a point where runoffs on all these modern tracks seems to be at a level that everyone 's comfortable with, but we 're also going back to more street circuits where of course there 's no runoff, which is not a problem because it 's the angle of impact as long as you can keep the crash moving you 're losing energy. What is always an issue is a sudden stop. Sudden stop. Um, so uh, you know, street circuits are very challenging and, and fun for the drivers, but they don't always give exciting racing. But they do give us a crash, which means there's usually a safety car, which then can lead to exciting racing. That's what we saw in Baku. That's what we've seen at a few races this year. Safety cars have given us some unpredictable shake-up towards the end of the the, the, the race. Barcelona was a much more normal service resumed, other than a sort of Grosjean moment, which which caused an incident. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else was fairly static um, other than Ferrari making an extra stop it was quite predictable that Hamilton was under control that is the majority of Formula 1 races but what I wasn't quite encouraged by is the actual spread of lap time across the top three teams I think it was six tenths from pole position to the Red Bull you know they know what the offset is an engine they would say it's seven tenths um but let's say it's half a second it shows how close the ferrari the mercedes and the red bull are in pure performance and i think that three different teams different groups of designers you know different bases and to go around that racetrack in the hands of different drivers to be within one or two attempts that's fantastic i i believe and it should lead to really unpredictable um racing so that looks like it's going to change for next year. Um, talking to some of the, the teams, they, you know, some think, well, it's good because it's making steps towards making the cars apparently less sensitive to aerodynamic um, turbulence. But there's a huge amount of development and cost that will go into that. So every time there's a regulation change, the big teams can afford to just soak it up in their budgets and they're spending hundreds of millions. The small teams, they, they'll take a step back again. They just can't spend the time in the wind tunnel, they can't spend the time CFD. They, they, they will have a very basic form of what the new regs are. And occasionally they hit it right and they're, they're, they're quite competitive. But more often than not, we get a spread again. So I, I get a little bit frustrated that we keep allowing history to repeat itself. It cannot be beyond the possibilities of these designers to understand how downforce is generated and what is the, the more efficient way of maintaining that downforce. Some people would suggest that skirts is, is quite a good way of doing that. If you remember back in the, in the 80s, they, they didn't have front wings, a lot of the cars, they didn't need them. All the downforce came from down below the car. So, look, I'm sure there'll be a clever designer who would roll his eyes at me and, and, and tell me why I've just got no idea... Um, and explain why that won't work, but nothing else they seem to have done has particularly worked either. So uh, I'm a bit nervous about the changes, um, but I'm ever hopeful that we're just one season away from an amazing uh, world championship.
1: I can't, I can't, we're talking about front wings there. I can't help but remember that in Spain, Max knocked his front wing off and then recorded his fastest lap. I know, it's was amazing, wasn't it? I know. Yeah. <laughs> the, all, the, all the engineering yeah. skills that, and money that go into designing
2: I know he took the whole winglet away and you, you, as a driver, whenever I've damaged the front wing you can, you know, mentally I can feel the increased understeer but I think it's what we are you know, what's changed from my time and and I haven't experienced this, I accept that but talking to the drivers who speak very openly with me they're not pushing 100% all the time they are pushing hard within the Pirelli tyre formula but you know, Daniel Ricciardo did he stop and well he's not up with the front runners I'll bang the tyres right now deliver fastest lap and then I know I'm going to struggle and overheat the tyres a bit later so he's making a choice not based on winning the Grand Prix it was based on I want to have the, the fastest lap and the bonus that goes with it um, so uh, you know the damage to Max's front wing in qualifying absolutely would have made the difference but in race trim driving at whatever percentage they can declare that is, managing the tyres, it it had less of an effect.
0: Talking of Daniel Ricciardo, you're a former Red Bull driver. Mm. Fast forward 10 years, imagine you're still a Red Bull driver. If you were in his position, would you stay or would you go?
2: That's a very good question, because um, on one hand... Or do you know the answer to that already? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know the answer. Um, but, But on one hand, I believe in loyalty. You know, if you look at... Okay, I jumped ship from Williams as soon as I had the chance to, to go to... Uh, sorry, a lady just walked past. <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, but I did know her. It's not just a random lady. Um, so uh, I moved to McLaren because Frank changed the deal. I went at the end of 94 to sign a two-year contract. The lawyer gets the contracts out, and Frank goes, change my mind, I want to do a one-year deal. So he reneged on what we'd agreed And that then stimulated me to go to McLaren and sign a two-year contract and that led to a nine-year stint or nine-season stint at McLaren. Otherwise, largely speaking, and then it was when they basically said, you know, you've done your time here, then I went to Red Bull for four seasons. So I believe in loyalty. So I would like to imagine that as Red Bull have brought him up through, given him a winning car, yes, there's some frustrations, but I'd like to think he would stick with it and, and, and... hope that they will you know they continually develop and, and deliver a very fast racing car on the other hand a very obvious romantic notion would be his family are from italy he's very much a proud australian boy doesn't speak italian but you know i'm sure he could pick up a few words um i wish sebastian would learn something more than something ragazzi some whatever he keeps saying when he wins you know there you go um, So, uh, you know, you can imagine that Kimi is fast. Kimi's delivering the lap times, but he's not delivering the results on the same level as he used to. So I know people don't like it when I say this, and it's based on the respect of him being a world champion, but I just don't think he's as as good overall as he was in the past. There's no shame in that. We all age, you know, there's a peak for us all. I don't think Michael was as good as he was at the end of his career as he was in the middle of his career, where he was exceptional. So it's taken me a long time to answer this question if you, I might need to remind you of what the question was <laughs> uh, but I I don't think there's uh, I, I just don't feel there's a place at Mercedes for him I think the Bottas is doing enough to, to maintain that position so I think it is a very straightforward Ferrari uh, Red Bull um, and I do believe he's sincere that he hasn't or certainly didn't have prior to, to Barcelona a pre-agreement or a signature with a with a contract so therefore I admire his bravery to to have the confidence that he won't suddenly lose both. You know, that takes a, a position as well, to go, look, I'm prepared to be out of contract because I know I'm going to get out a, a drive in on one of those two seats. What would you like to see him in? Would you like to see him move? Or
1: i I'd quite like to see him stay at Red Bull because hmm. I think him and Christian and Max is a formidable team, yeah. and I think they could do a lot. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I quite like the dynamic between him and Max, but I do, don't know if you whether you agree, but I think... Daniel tends, despite all of the fantastic performances in it, and as a racer, he's just brilliant, Mm. that he's slightly underrated because all of the hype that's focused on Max. But I mean, Max makes far more mistakes than Daniel does, Mm. and he might be slightly quicker over a lap. Fine. But the job job is to be a racing driver and to bring the thing home in position X at the end of the race, and as often as not, Daniel finishes ahead. Mm. Um, And I just think sometimes, a lot of people say, oh, he's, he's been found out. He hasn't been found out. Um, but I mean, do, you, do you think he's slightly underrated?
2: Well, it's interesting that you see it from that, that point of view, and maybe I'm a little bit too too close to the team in that you know I still do running show car yeah. events for them, so you know because I'm not a competitor to them, then there's a, a camaraderie, and a, you know I get information, I guess, that maybe wouldn't be. Be sure. I, I think he, personally, he's highly rated within the team. I think that I Red Bull, I mean, I mean, yeah, Bo- by Bo- the Bo- world, world outside, yeah. Well, I like guess you, you know everyone will. People have their favorite football teams, and they, they're never going to change. And and um, so people will always have their. This is my team. This is my driver. But I personally think that they are the strongest driver pairing in Formula One, despite in terms of pure speed. Okay, Max has made a few mistakes. Daniels made some mistakes, but I think that they both deliver at a very high level and it's a good problem for Red Bull to have that they occasionally run into each other. Uh, if you've got two quick guys fighting over the same piece of tarmac, history has shown, even you know, if you consider Senna to be one of the best or the best, he ran run into a few people, either accidentally or deliberately. <laughs> um, so even the very, very best get it wrong occasionally.
0: Yeah, I mean, having spoken to Christian about it, I know how highly he raised Daniel, and I know he'd like nothing more than to, to keep the pair of them, but I, mean, like, I think it's a fantastic... I mean we need we need team we need we need teams with, with, with two two number ones more or less. We need that.
2: Yeah. Do you
1: think they're gonna be continued to allow to race? Yes.
2: They, if they run into each other again, then they, they understand they're being paid by the team. You know, it's very difficult for a team, other than saying, um, you know, they, they I guess they could find them, but these guys are independently wealthy now, so it's, it really isn't going to change where they're at in their mind. They're not motivated by money right now. And you either you've either the relationship's broken down to the point where you, you file the person out of the team or you just remind them that you really shouldn't be doing that. But the reality is they don't want to crash into anyone. It's not just the fact they don't want to crash into the teammate. If that had been Daniel into the back of uh, Lewis, it still would have been a very dark day because he'd gone out of the race. Um, he's exceptional in, in racing wheel-to-wheel. He He went all in, assuming the door would be open, and the door wasn't because Max... Is a very hard racer. So you roll the dice and you take your chance. Had it come off, it would have been yet another uh, tick in the box of exceptional Daniel overtakes. But sometimes, you know, even the very best make mistakes. And in that case, you know, it took two to tango, but I still believe, and others have another point of view, but I still believe that Daniel was the majority shareholder in the responsibility of the two cars coming together.
0: Moving on to uh, another of your former teams, the one with whom you spent most of your time, won all but one of your Grand Prix. What the heck's going on at McLaren? <laughs> yeah.
2: um, they have. If you look through the history of McLaren, whenever they've sort of developed into automotive, the Formula One teams dropped away. It happened, you know, late 80s, early 90s with the F1, which is, you know, one of the most iconic. Uh, sports cars today then the team dropped away in performance and then they built it back up again into winning with Mika And, and together we were able to get constructors championships and and then automotive was there and it got a bit busier and Ron had this belief of course that to be successful you needed to be with the manufacturer I believe that Mercedes buying into the team further was an option but Ron somehow didn't want that or upset that arrangement so As great as Ron has been at building this amazing uh, team, this amazing group of companies and and deserves absolute respect and kudos for doing so, there are also enough real-life examples and rumours of where he's broken deals by his absolute uh, inability to compromise when maybe a little bit of compromise wouldn't have lost them very much but could have gained them quite a lot and losing Mercedes was the first part of or, or deciding to not be with Mercedes was the first chink in, in the modern era difficulties and to take on board a year early because they could have run with the Mercedes contract another year to take on board a year early a Honda engine that you haven't got legitimate figures that, that, to tell you that it has 100 horsepower less you know it, it's just mind-boggling to me that why would you Put that in the back of your car when you know it's going to affect your performance in the short term with the faith that they will develop it within a season to be at the same level as the Mercedes. You know, it just, If you're financially in a position where you have no choice, then you have no choice. You do it. You know, Eddie Jordan taking Yamaha engines in the Jordan, he was being paid to do it. They needed it to keep the team going. It was difficult for them at that time. But McLaren had a choice and a series of bad choices have led them to where they are now. And they've had what can be considered a good start to the season. Could they've scored points in all the races? But they're running a second slower in Barcelona than the Red Bull with, with the same engine. They're, they're going through a restructure. I believe in them. I believe they'll, they'll be back. But it, it's still going to be another season or so, isn't
0: it? Well, it looks yes. Yeah, it, it, it looks that way. And um, last of your former Formula One teams, also in a bit of a well, <laughs> a bit of a slump, Williams.
2: It's a difficult one because. I have a, a great deal of affection for Williams and a great deal of respect for Williams. And um, therefore, anything that I would say that would be uh, critical when I have no skin in their game and I'm sitting on the outside, I understand why they'd be disappointed and I understand why they, they, they wouldn't appreciate it. But the fact is that when people question the driver lineup as being the strongest driver lineup they could put in the car, I think if they're really honest and look in the mirror, uh, and that's Murrah with 15 Rs, by the way, because <laughs> of my accent. Uh, if they're very honest, they, they have to acknowledge that maybe, uh, with, in terms of experience, there was a stronger driver lineup available. Now, no risk, no gain. The, the two of them may well be the most talented drivers to ever be in Formula One, and they, they may go on to dominate and trade world championships in the future. But right now, unless Williams get himself into that position... It's going to be difficult for either of them to uh, leverage their performance in a Williams car to get into one of the top seats. Money will take you so far, but in the end you have to deliver. So I'm not saying that they are not potential world champions, but I'm just stating what I think we can all see, that you know Williams have clearly got some issues with their car in conjunction with the fact that you know, It's quite difficult to, to spend a lot of time Googling the past results of the two drivers in Formula 1 because they don't have a history in Formula 1. And, of course, there has to be a first year for all these guys and youngsters. But um, it just doesn't look... It, it looks to me uh, that the business model and having to service the fact that they, they're uh, publicly owned and have to re- deliver a return... Would make you make different decisions. You know, I think Force India lost 40 million last year. Williams made a profit, but didn't finish particularly high up in the championship. They'll make a profit this year, I'm sure, but they're not going to finish particularly high up in the championship. I understand business, you want to make a profit, but equally, sometimes without investment, it's quite difficult. To, to get the gains, especially in such a competitive market, you, you know, I'm very open if you disagree or, or want to add anything to what I've just said there, or anything I've missed. But that's how it kind of feels to me. I,
1: I, would, you know, I would agree actually. Yeah. I mean, the one thing would you take a second look at Qubit Sir?
2: If they've got the data, if he was genuinely like for like. As quick or potentially quicker than either of the race drivers in Barcelona, why would you not have that tenth in the car or that two tenths in the car? That's going to make a big difference to them. So,
1: and the experience that you mentioned.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and the and the experience. Um, You know, speaking openly, it's uncomfortable to watch Robert driving when you can see he's not able to grasp the wheel in the way that we would classically imagine someone driving a car. But clearly, he is. You know able to still drive the car quickly, and he had his spin, and he was able to get the clutch in. So it didn't seem that you know the injury is actually getting in the way of his ability to drive the race car, but it's just something different for us to get used to, you know the fact that the hand is like that, rather than you know getting a hold of the wheel like that. But if he's got half a tenth in him over the other two drivers, that's probably 250,000 euros' worth of wind tunnel development. So get him in the, get him in the car.
1: I suppose the other thing with Williams is that they've kind of fallen between two stools they're not a a, a mega team and they're not a minnow either they're they're kind of in between so they probably have to think about the money
2: as well uh, well they've got tens of millions of reasons to be thankful that they've got two talented drivers in the car as I said at the beginning all the guys in Formula 1 are talented but we're looking for exceptional and as yet I I don't know which one of the two is exceptional or whether they will be exceptional
0: <clears throat> We've already discussed Max, who is still, despite everything he's achieved, a young driver. There's a decent crop of prom- promising youngsters coming through, Stoffel van Dorn, Esteban Ocon, Sean Leclerc, which have kind of most impressed you of the I new, new think, breed?
2: Yeah, I think Charles has been very impressive, relatively inexperienced in Formula One, sober. of the expectations where well, they would be at the back, they've, they've clearly taken a step forward and he sees the opportunity. And that's the thing that I love to see in young drivers, that they may not be in the best car, but somehow when the moment's there, they, they get the result. You know, like Pierre Gasly, you know, when Toro Rosso had, had some opportunity, he was there jumping on that result. That's what Brendan Hartley now is under pressure to deliver, because he's had a you know, bit, bit unfortunate time and a couple of little incidents, and all of a sudden, the spotlight of success within that team is on Pierre, and the question mark is on Brendan. Brendan has it in him, but can he get it out and can he deliver it? And that's, um, you know, in terms of what uh, Charles has been able to do, is he, he's, he's been delivering and it's fantastic to watch. And, you know, I'd not that I have the answers to everything, but what would seem like a, 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 a um, feasible solution if Kimi was to retire at the end of this year would be to put Charles on the car. Year experience at Sauber, understands Ferrari, part of their young driver programme, Get him alongside uh, Sebastian Vettel. Probably yeah, prepared key to key play key number Daniel two for a year, you know, yes. Yeah. Or if yeah. Daniel went there, then you know maybe for Red Bull he'd be uh, he'd be desirable as well.
0: <clears throat> it's quite interesting what's happened at Red Bull, isn't it? Because when you were there, they had a, about thirty or forty young drivers just kind of a level or two below Formula One, and then when they got rid of Kvyat, suddenly so they looked in the cupboard and it was. Not bare, but most of the ones I still had were about 15 years old. It's, it's funny how I mean the, 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 bru- the policy of brutality, uh, you know, they, they kind of overlooked a few things, didn't they?
2: I think that we have to admire what Red Bull have brought to, to motor racing. And I'm not saying this just because of, I've they got a relationship. They yeah, or, the, or they yeah. pay me. But I am genuinely looking at... They, they, cho- they can invest, and they do invest, in a lot of different sports. But Dietrich likes motorsport. He doesn't have to do a young driver programme. They can afford to buy whoever the, the hottest property is. And the, you know, the young Max and Daniel have come through that programme. I know for a fact that both of those guys and other young drivers, uh, Sebastian was another example, even though they had a contract, once they'd shown that they had delivered some results in Formula 1, they renegotiated the contract to bring them in line with what the market would pay them instead of going, no, no, we've agreed this, that's, where you, that's what you're meant to be paid this year. That's what you're going to be paid. So they're incredibly giving. They own two Formula One teams. They employ hundreds of people uh, and and invest in these young guys to bring them through. I think they have every right to go, "Mm, Nah, I don't think you're delivering the results for whatever reason. Or something tells me that you might have some talent, right, we're we're paying for you in Formula Four. So it is brutal, but equally what, what is really brutal is not being part of any Young Driver Programme and having to find the money yourself and having to knock on doors and try and get in there. But it's well within the capabilities to ha- take someone that hasn't been part of the Young Driver Programme, but it's part of how they engage on the journey through. You know, the, Red Bull is a marketing company at the end of the day. They, they don't make the drink, they don't make the can, that's made when, in, in, other, in other areas. They, they market the product and deliver it to to the customers and Formula One's part of that.
0: Do you think that if you were starting out in motor racing today, that you'd be able to make Formula One? Nope. I mean, <laughs> no because I mean, <laughs> when you I mean there were there were tobacco sponsors, yeah. there were scholarship schemes, yeah. and but now unless you're a young driver or a Red Bull driver, I mean a few get few, but pardon me, yeah. a few get through, but um, it, it's a lot tougher, isn't it?
2: It is. It's a lot more expensive, even in karting. You know, I've got a nine-year-old. We have a kart. We go to the kart track and we go around in circles. And when I look at when he'll eventually maybe go racing, people tell me you need €250,000 Euros to do European karting. Now, whether I can afford that or not is, is not the, the issue. The issue is €250,000 Euros to go karting. You know, it, it, it's... Uh, Normal people don't have that disposable income. Motor racing has always been expensive, but at a certain certain point we've lost the ability for a small motivated family team to put machinery on track that can be competitive. And I think that's such a shame. It's one thing pinnacle of the sport. You know, football salaries and and the cost of running a team has grown as as it's been fed by the competition between television companies to, to broadcast. The, the the sport, but the, I just think it's, and I'm hoping that David Richards and I've spoken to Felipe Massa and the FIA I hope that they will able will be able to get a hold of it to to make a a pathway that is almost affordable, where talent can be um, assisted on its way through, and it's not a, a, what it started out as ultimately as being a rich man's sport. Um, so. I don't think there were certain things that fell in favour for me uh, you know my father we, we bought a Formula Ford car from Van Diemen we we went to David Leslie senior and junior who were experienced in motorsport and we set up our own little team they had a good relationship with Scholar Engines Alan Wall Dropper. Um and we were able to be competitive and, and you know I, I had a work ethic to learn how to drive these cars and I was afforded the luxury of being able to do a lot of testing. But you know we were able to win and that created the, the opportunity with Paul Stewart Racing. But the year before, Paul Stewart Racing didn't exist as a staircase of talent. It, it started to exist in perfect timing for me to have shown that I was winning in the lower formulas. That gets me three more years of motor racing. Then they ran out of money. And then I went to Pacific and it was a struggle to get that. The debts were building because we're borrowing money. And then I went to Vortex for 94. I was uh, able to get a free chassis from Reynard. I was able to get Nicholson McLaren to uh, offset the payments of the engine. So effectively, I, I hadn't paid anything on the engine when I went to Silverstone with Ronnie Meadows, who's now the team manager at uh, Mercedes. And... Um, do the first race and finish on the podium I think Gilles won that day Gilles won you were yeah second. I was yeah. second and uh, you know uh, Paul um, oh, sorry I forget his name from Reynard. he was the composites manager he was my engineer Paul for Crosby. Paul Crosby uh, no sorry not Paul, uh, Paul Crosby was at Paul Stewart Racing um, Paul Thompson uh, no oh it's so embarrassing I can't remember his name I can see him he's f- audible and I hope he doesn't watch this but anyway Paul Owens it, Paul Owens thank you very much sorry about Paul I do apologise <laughs> at the end of a very long day he came and engineered the car and uh, we got that result and it was the weekend that sadly Ayrton was killed and Roland uh, was killed I didn't have the money for that race never mind the next race Uh, and then I went Formula 1 racing so I literally was in the last chance saloon there was no more family funding and who knows whether I even would have found a a lifeline in touring cars Who, who knows you know, but circumstances opened up and created an opportunity, and and I was able to have a fifteen-season career in Formula One.
1: you sketched that sort of brilliantly. I'm just sort of really intrigued as to at that moment. I mean, the stress levels in the Williams team after after Evans' and death hmm. must have been incredibly difficult for you to get behind the wheel and well, forge a career. I mean, yeah, it, it,
2: yes and no. Yes, because it's a reality of life, I I have emotions like anyone else um, with the exception that you put in that uh, selfish gene of a motor racing driver and um, in the same way that the racing team puts the car on the track because that's what they do and going back in the history of sport they were losing drivers a lot more frequently than we have during my time in in the sport but the show must go on and, and the next person goes in the car. And also the benefit of youth is you never think it's going to happen to you. As you get older and you become a father, you become a lot more aware of your own mortality and what your life expectancy might be and what that will mean in terms of your your children's journey. And uh, so, of course, things change. But when you're 24 years old and there's a seat there and it will be filled, even out of all the tragedy and all the difficulties, you want to be the one that gets the call. Now, I wasn't banging on Frank's door and pushing to... To make it happen, but I positioned myself by work ethic and commitment and showing that i if I, there was a need, I was ready to go so you know, i didn 't know that was going to happen, of course not, but this is why I think you know coming back to the book there 's some key learnings in there which just make sure that you 've always got your best foot forward you know you don 't just put yourself forward when you think there's the um, the interview process, every day is the interview process, everywhere you go is the interview process, and I think some people, you know, either don't think like that, and and miss opportunities, um, or they haven't, you know, they, they, they just, they're not hungry enough, they may have talent, but talent alone is not going to get you, get you there, you know, when I look back, I'm actually as proud, and I, w- I come from a fortunate background, there was family funding to get me into motor racing, but it wasn't a, ne- a never-ending tap, like some guys who are in Formula 1, where there's been a lot of money being spent on them. And when, when my family said, look, son, that's it, you're on, on your own now, I, I had enough experience, enough contacts in Formula 1 to go to Reynards and talk to them, and oh, i sort it out, you know, not quite an Eddie Irvine-type blagging. Um, Scenario or an Eddie Jordan type lagging, but I de- developed enough contact and enough confidence to, you know, give me that opportunity, and I'll work it out somehow. So th- it was a great life lesson. Before then, my Formula One career kicked off because I had to, on my own two feet, go and and, and you know appeal to people's generosity uh, to, to believe that it would work out in the end somehow.
0: And um, we're gonna have to. Wrap it, wrap it up now but uh, thank you David for your time as always and um, good luck with the book which I, I gather is also available as an audio version but I, I believe um, you've only read the introduction to that you haven't done the whole thing is that because you, you couldn't be bothered you couldn't have to Stephen Fry or <laughs> you're too busy I don't know is it too-
2: uh, the, the honest truth is that um, I'm not particularly good at reading out loud and creating... You're,
0: you're a media professional with Channel 4.
2: Yeah, but that saying... I know what's going to be coming out my mouth. No one else does. But, um, you know, I... I remember standing up in an English class at school and uh, as we had to do, and I'm sure you had to do, and I'm, I'm reading from a, a, from a section of book and, and thankfully I don't remember the name of the book, but there, there was a... For some reason, it must... You know, there must have been a kitchen scene in this particular part of the story and they were uh, clearly preparing the ingredients to make a meringue. But when I got to that section of reading meringue, I read meringue, And the, cl- the class laughed out loud. And I'm almost over it. Another, another two years of counselling. Um, so even though these are my words, and I- I'm able to put words down, I'm able to have them in my mind and tap them out, or have someone tap them out for me, but to read, I find difficult. You know, my father's dyslexic. I haven't been. Um, uh, my brother's dyslexic, and his kids are dyslexic. I haven't been uh, diagnosed with that difficulty, um, but I've clearly got something which makes it difficult for me to to read out loud. So um, I did the acknowledgement because they felt that would help. But for me to to do the entire book in a way that would be uh, enjoyable for people at home to listen to it would take me weeks. So <laughs> but in that time, I could have, uh, could have written another book. Well,
1: just, just, before, so, just before we finish up, one question. It's Le Mans month. Fernando Alonso, mm. what do you think his chances
2: are? Well, the whole system is there to create this winning platform. So if he cannot win the, uh, Le Mans, I almost said the World Championship, if he cannot win <laughs> Le Mans in this year, given where the structure of all the other manufacturers then you know it doesn't mean he wouldn't win it otherwise because he's a great talent, but it, it's there's periods, isn't there, of when it's at its peak of competitiveness. You know, Le Mans is a, a, a huge challenge. You know, I went there, finished the race, stood on the podium, held the trophy. Sadly, sadly, yeah. sadly, the history yeah. books don't recognize my great performance along with John Nielsen it wasn't, it wasn't and, 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 and David Brabham, <laughs> but I fulfilled my obligations, and in my mind. I am a Le Mans winner. Um, the history books just don't agree with that. Uh, so um, he, he has to, if, if the Toyota, car, Toyota cars both finish and they're both running together, it has to be his car that wins it because why else would you put Fernando Alonso on that platform? And if he does, it will be a huge achievement because I don't think there's ever an easy win at Le Mans um, irrespective of what the competition are any given time. Would you agree with that? Because it doesn't seem on paper as if it's the most competitive LMP1 battle at the moment, because there only is.
0: Well, there are nine There's two yeah. words, coming. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would agree with that. I mm. think we don't win it yeah. this year.
0: David, thanks for your time. Good luck thank with the book. Good thank luck you. with the audio recording. And thank you all for listening to uh, another Motorsport Metamor- Met- Magazine podcast. We'll be back with you again very soon.
2: You see, it is difficult to to do the audio side of things,
1: and you're not even reading it.
2: No,
0: I'm
1: no. um, not. Can we? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to eighty percent less than clay litter.